Hey everyone, welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. My name is Corey. I'm here with my husband, Matlock, as usual. Hey, Matlock. Hey, how you doing? Good. I'm excited to finish the Old Testament and to move into the New Testament because that's what our assigned reading with Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV, that's where it led us this week. So we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter one. So the last book of the Bible, the, the whole thing, Malachi one through four, all the way till Matthew chapter 18. So there's a lot to cover, but I think it's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Okay. Malachi chapter one. So at this point in history, where we are when we get to this prophet is that the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem. So this is after the Babylonian exile. The It's after Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the temple's rebuilt, Jerusalem's okay, but here comes Malachi, a prophet of God with a message. And it's a concerning message at that. So Israel, uh, we're told in Malachi chapter one, is doubting God's love and they're offering blemished animals. So they're they're looking begrudgingly at the temple sacrifices. So they're not gladly uh, and willingly giving the best of their, uh, their produce and, and, and their animals. They're, they're bringing kind of the, the okay elements of it. And when they do bring these elements, they're doing it. I wish I didn't have to do this kind of thing. Right, right. Like, here we go. Does God really need this animal? I'm giving it to him anyway because he says I have to, but does he really need it? So there's a begrudging that's going on. So God calls uh, them out at this point through Malachi that this is a problem and that if they don't properly worship God, other nations will properly worship God, that, that they will. Like, this is inevitable. Right. Other nations are going to properly worship God. So Malachi chapter 2, we're told that the, the priests of Israel in Jerusalem at this at this point have decided um, to dishonor God's name or to maybe rather than dishonoring it, they're rather choosing not to honor mm. God's name. And so they have become themselves cursed. So they're going to be brought down low. They're going to be humiliated uh, because they've actually shown partiality in matters of the Mosaic law. They've betrayed the covenant, the very thing that they're supposed to be upholding and teaching. They're not doing it. We're also told that people, that men of Israel and Jerusalem have married women who are actively involved in the worship of other gods, Hmm. which is a huge problem. That's why they weren't supposed to marry foreign women. They could marry foreign women if they became Israelite uh, first, but this is not what was happening. Worse off, not only were they marrying women who were worshiping foreign gods, they were actually divorcing their God-honoring wives mm. in order to marry these women. And then they, when they go to the temple to offer their sacrifices, they're actually crying out to God because God's not blessing their harvests. So God's saying, what do you think is going to happen when you break the covenant? Well, the curses for breaking the covenant are going to happen to you. You're not going to be blessed. So God tells the men to be on guard against these kinds of things and to be faithful to the wives of their youth. Uh, And he talks about the man who, who hates and divorces his wife is actually doing violence to the very person, the one person that he is supposed to be protecting. So be on your guard against this kind of sin and do not be unfaithful. That's the message of Malachi chapter two. 
Malachi chapter 3, this next message is that the people are breaking God's covenant through injustice. So God's going to have to refine the people and purify the people. And he asks this question, who will stand? Who will be able to stand through this refinement process, which is a very ominous thing for God to say through a prophet. Mm -hmm. Um, We're told that they're breaking the covenant by robbing God. So by not honoring God for withholding their tithes and offerings, it's as if they were robbing God. It, It reveals their heart, the heart of the matter. They're also breaking the covenant by saying that it it doesn't benefit them to follow the covenant. So they're justifying themselves at this point. Well, why would we follow the covenant if it's not helping us anyways? Well, they're not following the covenant. So that's why they're not being helped. So it's this, this, this reasoning that is just faulty. Um, So, We're also told in Malachi 3 that there were people in Israel, in Jerusalem, who listened to these messages of God through Malachi. They were faithful to God. And it says that their names are written down on a scroll of remembrance before God and that they would become the next remnant of Israel because of their response to God's word. And then this last chapter in the Old Testament of the Bible, Malachi 4, this talks about how judgment is coming on the wicked, but how that remnant of faith to God will be saved. They, they're going to survive uh, the purification process of God and they're going to be healed. Um, and this is where that beautiful line comes in. You may recognize it. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So there's this great promise for the remnant of Israel who are able to withstand the refinement of God and stay faithful to God through it. Uh, And then, of course, there's a famous promise that the prophet Elijah will come first to prepare the way, Right, which is interesting. We see that in which we're going to read now in Matthew 11, Mm -hmm. when he goes, if you're willing to accept it, Christ says this, if you're willing to accept it, um, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. Right. He just like full out sets it. Right. So... It's really interesting that the Bible, uh, sorry, the Old Testament ends that way, mm-hmm. and then we get into the New Testament, and you have this whole the intertestamental period that we don't have access to at the, uh, in the Bible. In the Bible, yeah. Yeah, but uh, we have this whole time period that's been gone, so it's like people have been waiting for so many promises that have, have yep. come, and this is pretty much it's the last promise that Elijah will like uh, prepare the way for this for the great and awesome day of the Lord. Yeah. For the um, kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. So and then here we are. So I'll I'll sit I'll stop there. But yeah. Okay, Matthew chapter one. So like you said, there's been a few hundred years of history that's happened. Uh, there There is some really exciting history and interesting history that happens between the Old and New Testaments. But basically what you need to know as we go into the New Testament is that Israel has been oppressed again. They are no longer free. Uh, so they are now under the dominion of the Roman Empire. And so that's why you're going to see for a time they have a certain amount of political independence. So you're going to see King Herod, uh, also referred to as Herod the Great. But then later on, you're not going to be seeing any kings referred to uh, in the New Testament. You're going to see governors, Roman governors, uh, who were like representatives of that foreign Roman power living in Judea. And then you're going to see prominent politicians and religious leaders who are helping to lead the way in Judea because Israel became Judea, a province of the Roman Empire. Okay. So Matthew chapter one, we get this genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So 
Matthew calls him the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It emphasizes, Matthew is purposefully emphasizing Jesus's role as the Messiah by uh, pointing out that Jesus had Davidic roots and Jewish roots. He is essentially, Christ is essentially the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the covenant promise to Abraham and the covenant promise to David. So we see a few purposes in the genealogy of Matthew that are a little bit different from a genealogy we're going to get to in a few weeks. But some of these purposes appear to be to set a legal precedent for Jesus to be the Messiah. So it's going through the Davidic line, showing that he comes from the kings of kings of David's line. Uh, But then it's also a select genealogy. So it does skip a few people here and there. It's arranged into categories of 14. uh, And this, this emphasizes the fact that Jesus comes from David's line because, um, in the practice, the ancient practice of uh, geometria, 14 is the sum of David's name. So each uh, Hebrew letter also had a sum attached to it, a, a number attached to it. So if you add those all up, it's 14. It was it was seen in the ancient world not as some mystical practice, but rather as a legitimate practice to help aid your memory, right. to remember these things. So Matthew appears to be really just trying to drive home this fact that Jesus fulfills this as David's right. offspring. Right. Okay. So then we see the birth of Christ, uh, but the, it seems to be told from Joseph's perspective. So from uh, Jesus's stepdad, his earthly dad, the the husband of Mary. So Joseph wanted to, wanted to divorce Mary, but quietly, secretly, when he finds out that she's pregnant, because he obviously has not impregnated her. Uh, but he has a dream, and in this dream, an angel tells him that the child is actually conceived of the Holy Spirit. So it's not that Mary has been unfaithful. This is a miracle of God. So. Uh, that happens and Joseph accepts Mary as his wife. And there's this overall theme that we see here in Matthew chapter one that's going to continue on about how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament scripture. So we've seen that in the genealogy. We've seen it in how Matthew arranged the genealogy. And now we're going to continue seeing it. So for example, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, which says the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the prophecies that Matthew chooses specifically are really interesting because they're generally, the ones that he chooses, they've generally already been fulfilled in the Old Testament time period. So we're seeing this this partial fulfillment in the Old Testament time period, but then when Matthew reuses them and applies them to Jesus and says, see, Jesus also fulfilled all of these prophecies. So there, it appears that they're awaiting full fulfillment and that they received that in Christ Jesus, which is a very interesting concept. Okay, Matthew chapter two, this is all about the Magi. Oops, sorry, I banged my mic, but this is all about the Magi from the east. So east of Jerusalem, they see a star, they recognize it as a sign of a king's birth. And so they go to Herod the Great, who is the current king of Judea. And um, they ask him, you know, where can we find this child? Because a king has been born. Uh, They head to Bethlehem on the advice of the chief priests and teachers of the law that Herod the Great uh, calls up 
to answer this question. The Magi find Jesus, they worship him, and they give him costly gifts fit for a king. When Herod realizes that the Magi aren't coming back because he has asked them, Herod Herod wants to kill this child because that's just Herod the Great. When you go back in history and see him, he killed anyone who was a challenge to his throne. Uh, so he's asked the Magi to come back and tell him so that he can go and worship the child as well. But when he realizes the Magi aren't coming back because they have been warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, he sends men to kill all of the baby boys two and under in Bethlehem because he knows that they've gone to Bethlehem to find this. And again, here we have Matthew uh, quoting a prophecy that has already found fulfillment. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew here, what's really interesting is he's pointing out that Jesus isn't just the son of David. He He's the son of Israel. He typifies, he fulfills everything that God has said about uh, Israel. He's fulfilling their very history as well in his life, which is a very interesting theological point. So Mary and Joseph then were told go to Egypt for a time because they are warned that it's not safe, that Herod is trying to uh, kill Jesus. Um, And they come back, they settle in Nazareth. uh, And Matthew says, you know, that that how the Old Testament scriptures say that he will be called a Nazarene, which is actually nowhere found in the Old Testament prophets. But there's two theories on this. One I think is stronger than the other. The first theory that's, that's, seems pretty solid is that this may be referring to the branch prophecies of the Old Testament prophets because the word branch, netzer, uh, can also be used as prince and and it, it shares the same consonants as Nazareth. Another theory is that this may be because Nazareth was seen as a backwater sort of place of ill repute. Uh, so it could be fulfilling Isaiah chapter 52 about how the Messiah will be despised and not thought well of. Right. Because of his origin. So yeah. those are the theories. Okay, Matthew chapter 3. I know I'm going to have to speed it up because we've been slowing down yeah, no, through no. some of these early chapters. But um, John the Baptist, this is where he enters the scene. So now Christ is grown up. John the Baptist is grown up. Uh, and he preaches, repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. Uh, so again, Matthew quotes Isaiah 43 about John, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We see that John himself was really antagonistic towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He calls them out all the time. And he's like, you talk about these things. You talk about how to be righteous, but how about you actually do the good work? that you're requiring of other people, of people who are listening to you. We're told that John baptizes people in the Jordan River. We're told that he lives in the wilderness and that he dresses like the prophet Elijah uh, from 2 Kings if you want to see the Bible's reference to how Elijah dressed, that's in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. So he's fashioning himself after Elijah. Right. So... In Matthew chapter 3, John also baptizes Jesus after some hesitation. He doesn't really want to because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But then they see this vision uh, of the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus like a dove. John sees this and he hears God's voice, um, which 
the the voice of God here and what it quotes is often said to be a merging of Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 verse 1. So if you want to check that out and see if you agree with it, it's Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42 verse 1. But basically that this would show, it would foreshadow, prophesy Jesus's role, not only as the royal Messiah, but also as the suffering servant Hmm. that was to come. There is something interesting here too, just to make note of. Uh, John says in verse 11, chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Yes. So what's interesting about this contrast that he makes here is that if you recall and later on in Acts, Apollos is baptized twice based on the same principle that John the Baptist sets out. Right. So he's, he's for John, Apollos is baptized once in John. They're like, have you been baptized in Christ? And he goes, no. So then Paul baptizes him in Christ and laying up the hands that he receives the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So that contrast is later... Is is kept right? It's kept right throughout the acts. I just want to point that out. Is that like it also poten- it also potentially explains why there was the vision of tongues of fire at, at Pentecost in the right. book of Acts because this is what they were expecting. This was the next step. Yes. Of of you know, baptism in Christ for them. Because John had prophesied he will baptize you in power and and fight with the Holy Spirit with fire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So interesting. Very interesting. Interesting correlations there. Matthew chapter 4. So this is the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness before the start of his ministry. So he's baptized and he goes off into the wilderness and he successfully goes through this period of temptation. Um, It's interesting that... uh, you know, the, the three areas where Jesus is tempted uh, are food because he's very hungry. Um, he, his identity as God's son is questioned and also his power is questioned or his his want for power, his need for power. So really interesting things uh, that he is tempted with. Okay, we're also told that John the Baptist gets arrested at this point uh, and Jesus then moves to Capernaum to begin his ministry. And again, this is said to fulfill Isaiah chapter 9 that talks about the, the land of Naphtali and Galilee will see the great light of God. So Christ chooses this area for a reason. So Jesus then picks up where John the Baptist left off and he also begins preaching the same message, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. So we see how Jesus and John's ministries were actually really intertwined with one another. We see Jesus calling Simon Peter and Andrew. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they were all fishermen, so he calls them to be his disciples. We see Jesus teaching in synagogues all throughout Galilee, and he begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God so that the kingdom has, has come near them. As well as preaching, he moves beyond what John did, and he Jesus begins healing diseases and healing sicknesses of people. And we're told that this healing obviously causes news to spread about him all over the country. And people began to travel to Jesus because they had illnesses, they had pain, they were demon possessed, they they were having seizures, people who were paralyzed and that Jesus healed them and was able to heal them. Right. In Matthew chapter 5, we get the famous Sermon on the Mount, also referred to as the Beatitudes. So these blessed are insert. There's (laughs) there's Beatitudes there. Uh, Jesus is teaching about, uh, you know, 
the disciples being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, uh, how Christ's mission is not to abolish the law and the prophets, but actually to fulfill the law and the prophets. There's a lot of teaching here in Matthew 5. Uh, there's a series of teachings that uh, that sees Jesus challenging the typical interpretations of that day hmm. of like what does the law mean here's what they believed they meaned it meant in that day right. and Jesus challenges those he rather emphasizes personal accountability to God rather than legal accountability to the nation itself of Israel so it's a different way of seeing it you weren't just responsible to the group of people you were more importantly responsible for your heart before God Almighty uh, he talks about murder he talks about adultery he talks about divorce, uh, promises, uh, restitution, and what are appropriate acts of love and hate. All in Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> a lot of teaching. Matthew chapter 6, the teaching continues. Uh, you know, he, he talks about not doing righteous acts so that they will be seen by people. So he's talking about the motivation of your heart. Uh, again, another motivation about don't pray in order to impress people but but rather pray in secret so again this is the motivation what 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 why are you doing the things that you're doing mm. don't fast to be noticed as righteous by other people don't focus on earthly wealth and rewards but instead think about heavenly rewards and building your treasure there don't worry so much about your physical life about having food and and clothing uh, but rather, focus on the kingdom of God first and God's righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. So that's all in Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 7 uh, talks about how to judge people hypocritically, which is bad, <laughs> which is bad. Don't judge people hypocritically. So he teaches about that. He talks about how God will always give good gifts. So this is the ask, seek, knock. Right. Matthew 7, 7 kind of thing. He talks about, he gives his teaching about the narrow gate versus the wide gate. So it's harder to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier to enter, enter the kingdom of destruction. Uh, he warns people to be on guard against false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. And he talks about how we'll recognize people like this by the fruits of their lives. So we have to know people in order to understand whether they're true prophets or false prophets. Um, he even talks about how there's going to be true and false disciples of his own. You know, very troubling. Uh, in verses 21 to 23, it says this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. <clears throat> There's something to be said there, too. Because sure. Matthew 5 and 7 are connected as a kind of like one mm -hmm. full sermon, right? Uh, and he lays off this, the beginning of everything with the Beatitudes or the beat a beatific vision, mm -hmm. some people call it. Um, and he's kind of ending on this note of like, you're saying hypocritical judgment, like judging other people, not even looking at your own eye. And then here he says, here... Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works or miracles in your name, right? Say, so get away from me. I never knew you. Yeah. So what's interesting here is, is that he begins with the vision of what the kingdom of God looks like. It's like be humble, right? Mm -hmm. Be uh, loving, 
be kind, be merciful, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God, and et cetera, et cetera. Theirs is the kingdom. Anyway, so you have this whole vision that's laid out, and it ends off of basically what not to do. It mm-hmm. starts with, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. This is how you don't enter the kingdom. This is how you. This is where the kingdom is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so and what's interesting, what's paralleled there is humility triumphs over prophecy, cast out demons, mighty works. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Because they're doing yeah, it in obedience. their names. That's right. Obedience and uh, obedience, obedience and uh, meekness. Yeah, and and just and and bowing to the authority of Christ rather than doing things in your own authority and for your own benefit. Yes, it's supposed to be for the benefit, for the love of God. Well, right, and that's mm-hmm. and that humility can't be done without Christ. Like you can't just be humble no. in and of yourself. You need God yeah. to be humble, right? And it, it's so, interesting too that he caps it off talking about the wise and foolish builders. So how the wise builders hear God's words and puts them into practice, and that's right. the only way that that anything will last is hearing and, and then doing. And it's interesting too, that, that this kind of teaching set Jesus apart from the other teachers of his day, because he wasn't trying to, you know, even us today, when, when we're teaching, uh, when you, when you go to a really good church, they'll preachers and teachers use the scripture to help us understand the spirit, our spiritual lives, and to help us understand the world around us, and help mm. us deconstruct our culture in order to understand, you know, is this is this a good thing that we believe this in our culture, or is this a bad thing? And here is why. And they use the scripture to justify those right. things, right? Jesus used the scripture, but he used it authoritatively. He didn't use it to justify himself. He just explained it. And he didn't use other teachers in order to justify his own teaching. He was teaching of his own authority. And that was very unusual for the day. So people recognize that of him as well, that he wasn't appealing to a higher human authority. Rather, he was appealing just to God's authority for his teaching, which is an interesting thought as well. It's very interesting. His authority is a streamlined throughout the whole thing. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Okay, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus heals a leper in this chapter, which was the servant of a centurion who was living in Capernaum. So he did this miracle for this Gentile centurion. We see him healing Peter's mother-in-law at home in Peter's house. And then a ton of people, and we're told that this fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. He took up our infirmities. He bore our diseases. Uh, you know, this quote from Isaiah 53, verse 4, if you go back and you look in your current Bible, your current English Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 4, it's going to look a little bit different because Matthew is quoting it through a, a different Greek translation through the Septuagint. Um, and our translations generally go from the Masoretic text. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting. So we're also told that Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is a very cool story. And uh, he heals the demon-possessed men in the region of the Gadarenes right. once they cross. Uh, and this is the one where the demons request to go into the herd of pigs. So Jesus accepts and then the pigs die and the people want Jesus gone because probably he's hurting their bottom line and it's freaking them out. <laughs> Freaking them out. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus comes back to Capernaum and uh, tells a paralyzed man. This would have been extremely controversial. Tells a paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. And the teachers of the law instantly think that Jesus is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus asks them, well, which is harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So that you'll see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He then tells the man to get up and I, walk. 
uh, and what's really interesting about that too is that like the healing is a point points to spiritual healing. So mm-hmm. physical healing points to spiritual healing. Forget him since Trump, so he uses the, the <clears throat> physical healing to be like, look, I have power over that, but that's not it. Yeah, it's, it's right, that's this, not your problem. Like yeah. your your actual problem is not that you're paralyzed right now. Your actual problem is that you need your sins forgiven. Right. And it wasn't the case with everyone that he healed, but specifically right. for this man it yeah, was. Yeah, but so many of the miracles are, about, are pointing to that final restoration date or just restoration itself right. through God. And he was showing, obviously, his authority through this. Yes, that, right, yes. That he, right, obviously. And that, that, but, that was the point of Jesus' miracles. Right. The main point was that showing, proving that he was the Messiah, that the power of God really was right. in his ministry and behind the things that he was teaching. Uh, I just really wanted to highlight the fact that the healing that we receive today physically is points to the the true healing that really is really important, the forgiveness of sins, right? The true, right. the healing of the soul. So I think that that's really important there because he uses that. It's like, well, what do you think is stronger? So I'll, I'll heal this person, but it's like, that's not what matters most. Anyways, sorry, it's interesting. Right. So lots more happens in Matthew chapter nine. All these chapters are pretty jam packed. Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector in Capernaum to become a disciple, uh, which in and of itself would have been very controversial because tax collectors were seen as traitors because they worked for Rome. Uh, And this is where we get Jesus's famous quip. You know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, I'm going to call people who need, I'm calling people who need me. You guys need me. You need, you need me. You need it. You need healing. Uh, Jesus, uh, there's fasting questions given to Jesus from the apostles or the disciples, sorry, of John. Uh, Jesus heals a woman who had been bleeding for 10 years. He raises a synagogue leader's daughter from the dead and he heals blind men and asks them not to tell anyone very interestingly, but they spread the word anyway. And the result is that it's very difficult for Jesus to now travel around. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12. So he gives the 12 disciples authority to drive out demons and heal sicknesses specifically, and he sends them out. All 12 are listed for us here in Matthew chapter 10. So we've got Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, Thomas and Matthew, also called Levi, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, which we're told is his pet name. It's like a term of endearment. Um, But he's also known as Judas, son of James. Uh, um, Simon the Zealot, and of course, infamous Judas Iscariot. Who also would have heard the words. Uh, all those who prophesy my name, cast out demons in my name, yep. do many miracles in my name will not come to He would have heard those words yep. and have been commissioned to go do those things. Yep. Interesting. So Jesus gives them, commissions them and gives them instructions. In Matthew chapter 11, we see from prison, John the Baptist having this moment of being unclear about who Christ was. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus actually is the Messiah or if they should be waiting for another one. So Jesus wasn't doing all the things that John thought that he should be doing, which is really interesting as a prophet of God. You know, you don't have full vision of everything that's that's right. going to happen, right? Jesus responds by telling John to look at the signs that Christ is, that Jesus is performing and what's happening all around him. Jesus then moves on to teach about John as the Elijah that was to come. So John is the prophesied Elijah. Uh, Jesus pronounces woes on the towns that he had visited and performed miracles in uh, that had chosen not to repent wholesale. Mm. How could you have the Messiah in your midst performing miracles and you do not broad 
broad sweeping, there's no broad sweeping repentance. So this is what Jesus is talking about here. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples get in trouble because they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath and then healing on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do anything on the Sabbath in those days. Uh, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath and how he, he teaches how it has always been lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are very angry. This is a huge challenge to them socially and just conceptually. Theologically. Theologically. the Lord of the Sabbath, which God created. Yes. So they begin to plot how to kill him, how to get rid of him. The Pharisees also accuse Jesus of being possessed with Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. They're saying, you know, he only has the power to cast out demons because of this. I've done a segment on this on the Bible Discovery program. So I would check that out because this seems to be a reference back to a practice in the time period of the kings. Uh, and essentially, it's calling out Jesus as a false king, as a false messiah, uh, more than even just inspired by Satan, which of course they're also claiming. But they're, it, it makes sense in their culture for them to accuse him of being possessed with Beelzebul. Okay, Matthew chapter 13. So we get Jesus's famous parables now in Matthew chapter 13. So the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. So we've got mm. the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the treasure in a field, uh, the parable of the merchant looking for fine pearls, uh, a net that catches all kinds of fish, lots of parables of what the kingdom of God or heaven is is like. Uh, at the end of this, Jesus goes to Nazareth and he's largely uh, written off by the people. Uh, he's ignored by the people of Nazareth because they know him. He grew up there. They know his father, Joseph, his mother, and it names his four brothers, uh, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And it, it says that he had sisters, plural, as well. So, that happens. Matthew chapter 14, John the Baptist, uh, his beheading is recorded in John chapter, uh, in, sorry, in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus goes on a boat to try to be alone, but a crowd follows him. So he teaches them. And then this turns into the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And also uh, he sends his disciples on ahead of him. And they think he's probably just going to, I'm, I'm imagining they're thinking he's probably just going to walk around the shore of the Sea of Galilee and meet up with them or catch another boat somehow. But instead, Jesus walks on water and we see Peter walking on water too in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law question Jesus about why he and his disciples don't wash their hands ceremonially before meals. So this is not about getting dirt off your hands. Uh, this appears that the Pharisees of that time had tried to apply the law of the priests more generally to the law of the people. So priests had to ceremonially cleanse themselves before they could work with the uh, holy articles in the temple. And now the Pharisees had extended this out to the people and that was just the mainstream kind of religious culture of that day and uh, Jesus and his disciples weren't doing that and so Jesus then gives this teaching about how it's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean before God it's actually what comes out of your mouth because that comes from your heart we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 in Matthew chapter 14 and also healing a Canaanite woman's daughter. So some Gentile healings going on. Matthew chapter 16, we're only going up to 18. So a couple more here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees demand from Jesus a sign from heaven to prove that he is the Messiah. 
Um, and Jesus gives them a little lecture and uh, on the weather and on Jonah, which is interesting. You should go read it in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus also compares the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees to yeast, uh, which they know is a bad thing if you go and you read that parable. Uh, Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, uh, which is a big thing. It's this confession of Christ. And Jesus then moves on from his identity as the Christ to telling his disciples that he is going to die. Uh, he's going to be murdered. He's going to be executed. Matthew chapter 17, we see the transfiguration uh, in front of Peter, James, and John. Uh, so Jesus is transfigured as a heavenly you know, being. And then uh, Moses and Elijah are there conversing with him. Uh, so that's a pretty big deal in Matthew chapter 17. Also, Jesus, when he comes back from the transfiguration, he casts out a demon that his disciples had not been able to heal. They had not been able to cast out these demons, even though Christ had already given them authority to do so. Jesus then predicts his death again. And then we have this really interesting episode with the temple tax where uh, Peter gets confronted. Doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, of course he does. And then he goes to Jesus and he's like, do we pay the temple tax? Because I said we did. And so Jesus then questions Peter about taxes to teach him. But then in order to uphold Peter's word, because they don't have the money for the tax, he does a miracle of provision, which is very interesting. Hmm. Matthew chapter 18, the last chapter we're looking at today. This is all about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Basically, whoever takes a lowly position like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So someone who has who had no rights in the society of the day, absolutely no rights, uh, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a really horrible warning against anyone who causes someone else to sin. There's a discourse on how to handle sin in the church, in the family of God the people of God. And then there's the parable of the unmerciful servant. So someone who was shown mercy, who was forgiven of his debt, but refuses to forgive others. And the point of that is you absolutely are obligated. You must, if you are forgiven of God, you are obligated to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You have to. Forgiveness has to be real. Otherwise, God will bring judgment and punishment. Right. And there we go. There we go. There we go. That was a lot. That was, I know, I, and there's so much stuff I, you know, there's, there's a lot to talk about in <laughs> so the gospel. So many details. I know. That there's are so awesome. Much. I know. You should read it. If, if, you, if you have time, go back and start reading some of these. I know it's a recap, so you don't have to read it to keep going. But luckily, we've got three more gospels to go through. That's right. So you're going to see some of this stuff again. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Until then, happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.